The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. You can, you can find your way back to your seats. If you haven't already, open your Bible to the book of Esther. I want to congratulate those of you who have been with us since the beginning of summer who have traversed a significant portion of the Old Testament with us. We began our summer series uh, of the historical narratives of the Bible in the book of Joshua. Joshua is the first book after the first five books of the Bible, typically called uh, Pentateuch. And Joshua begins the sort of formal history of Israel as they enter into the promised land. If you remember, Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses in Israel on the other side of the Jordan, looking at Canaan, which is the promised land. And Moses, their leader, has died, and God's promise remains on the other side of the river. So God raises up Joshua, and Joshua leads Israel over the Jordan into Canaan, beginning first with Jericho, Ai, and others. And then Joshua recounts the history of Israel conquering the promised land, beginning to settle into the promised land. And then we move on and on and on from Joshua to Judges to Ruth to Samuel, where we hear of King Saul and King David, a first and second Kings and a first and second Chronicles, which again retraces those histories of God's people and God's faithfulness from generation to generation. And then last week we looked at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which again is, is this post-exilic, after the, after the Israelites had fallen into captivity of Babylon and Assyria, and they've returned again under the providence of God and the kindness of the kings of Persia, allowed to resettle back into the land. They've rebuilt the temple. They have restructured the gates. They are reinstituting worship as God's covenant people in a new community to worship God. And the hope of God and the promises of God remain. That ended the formal history of God's people. And then the last book of the history here we have in the historical narratives is this book of Esther. And Esther is a peculiar book, kind of like the book of Ruth in that it, it zooms in to the story of just a few people instead of the story of a whole nation. And Esther focuses on really one particular character that we know, and her name there is the name of the book, Esther, but also on several others, her cousin Mordecai the king Ahasuerus and his queen, the, uh, the, the queen there, his wife, as well as some antagonists alongside the protagonists. And we get a picture of what God has been doing throughout history that we've seen this past summer, of this snapshot in, in Esther's story of God's faithfulness from generation to generation. If you recall the theme of our series this summer, as we've seen the history of Israel play out, the highs and the lows. Our theme has been a recounting of God's faithfulness from generation to generation. And many generations have passed in our journey through Israel's history, but God has remained faithful, even if Israel hadn't. So we've seen over the past summer of God's faithfulness, and Esther zooms us into the story of just a handful of people in the midst of captivity, that demonstrates really what we've been learning all summer. God's faithfulness, His character, bending towards justice, patience, mercy, and faithfulness. 
Esther is unique among all of the books of the Old Testament and that it alone does not mention God. You will read the book, and I hope you have this last week, and you will not find one mention in Hebrew or in Aramaic to God, to Elohim, to Yahweh. There's no mention of him, and this is intentional on the part of the writer. It's not simply an accident or an omission. No, he, as he's recording this story, after, of course, it has happened, has intentionally left out the mention of God. But where we see in word form, God is silent. As you read the story, you can't help but notice that the whole book of Esther screams of the Lord's presence. That where we think he might be there only as a whisper, God is moving behind the scenes like a rushing wind or a raging river, moving history along. And isn't that what he's been doing all this summer as we've studied the books of the Bible, the historical narratives? As he's helped lead Israel victory after victory in the promised land. As he's allowed them to raise up judges and leaders to guide them and have victory over other nations. And even as he's allowed them to fall into sin, into idolatry, and even in his moving among other nations to come and sweep them into captivity like Babylonia and the Assyrians, and even in his moving in the hearts of other kings like Darius and Artaxerxes to allow them to come back to the promised land to rebuild the temple in the wall. God has always been active. He has always been speaking. Not only has he been moving pieces like chess on a chessboard, but he has been sending his word to his people this whole time. Prophets had come among the people to warn them, to guide them, to lead them, and to instruct them. Even the post-exilic community had their prophets and their leaders to come, like Ezra and Nehemiah, the scribe. It's important to know that God, this whole time, has not been silent. He has not been idle. And when we read the book of Esther, we learn that that is exactly the case. That though he may seem silent to us, and though he is never mentioned in our own story explicitly, he is still nonetheless very present, very real, and very active. That's what happens in the book of Esther. What we're going to do is going to work really quickly through the book. It's only about 10 chapters. And so I want you to start in chapter one with me, and I'm going to give an overview of each chapter of, each chapter of the book as we go through it to kind of retell this story. Again, it's really, uh, I think, an encouraging story and an important story to read. If you haven't ever read the book of Esther, it takes maybe 25, 30 minutes, uh, maybe a little longer if you're a slower reader like myself, but really a helpful book and a captivating story uh, as well. So I would encourage you, if you haven't already, go back after today and read it in its entirety. But let's begin in chapter one as your eyes sort of skim over each chapter, and I'll retell you what's happening. In chapter one, we're introduced to the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, and to his wealth and his power. The first half of chapter one is really telling us how rich he is and how powerful he is, and essentially the, the, the breadth and the width of his kingdom and his might. This is really to tell us that he was a powerful, powerful person. King Ahasuerus is really a title, another name for King Artaxerxes, which we saw earlier in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But this king was powerful, and he was important, and you didn't trifle with him, and you didn't mess with him. 
In fact, the, the day, the, the, the religion of the day really understood the king to be God, that he was divine himself. And King Artaxerxes really understood himself to be a deity. And so this was true among all of his people, and they understood him to be as such. And so chapter 1 tells us his wealth and his power. And we're also introduced to his wife, Queen Vashti. And one day he decides through this big party he's having that he wants to come and parade his queen for everyone to see how beautiful she is. And she refuses to participate in this celebration. Now, I can't fault her for this, but it was understood that that was her job. And she refused to do it. And her defiance really cost her her position. It doesn't say that he killed her but that she no longer was allowed in the presence of the, of the king. And he, he essentially stripped her by the counsel of his servants of all of her titles and all of her positions. So she was no longer queen. He essentially sent her away or worse. And so in order to find a new queen, his servants devised this plan to have really a, a beauty pageant to find the next queen. This sounds at this point now like a Disney story. That I have all the most beautiful fair maidens of the land to come and see which one looks the best and strikes the king's fancy the most. And that will be the new queen. And so that's what they do. And in chapter 2, we're introduced to Esther. Now, Esther is part of the Jewish community of the diaspora. That is, those who are taken into captivity and, and dispersed around the country now in the nation of Persia. And they have, for the longest time, now been assimilated into the culture and really, the, the Jewishness has sort of worn off a little bit, though she's Jew by ethnicity, and she's very much part of the culture there. And that, that was the Assyrians' uh, strategy, was not simply to kill everyone that they overtook, but to really to integrate them, to assimilate them into society, that they would become Assyrians. But Esther, who was secretly a Jew, her parents had died, perhaps in the rebellion or having been taken into captivity, and she was then raised by Mordecai, which is her cousin. So Esther's parents was Mordecai's aunt and uncle, and Mordecai, who was older, took Esther under his wing and cared for her as his own. And Esther, of course, being a woman, then is conscripted into this pageant to be paraded about. And we're told in chapter 2 that she was very beautiful, that she was favored among the king, and that he indeed chose her to be the new queen. And so during this whole process, she would visit regularly with Mordecai out by the gates, who would instruct her. He told Esther not to tell the king that she was a Jew, for that might have been a disadvantage to her, and he wanted what was best for her. And so she was secretly hiding her Jewish ethnicity, and she was secretly hiding that Mordecai, who was a Jew, was her cousin. He would visit with Mordecai regularly near the gates. And one day, Mordecai's by the gates waiting for Esther to show. And he overhears a plot against the king by some of the guards. And when Esther shows up, he tells her. And she goes and informs the king who investigates and finds out that the plot is true. And they stop the plot. And this, this plot was recorded in how Mordecai had saved the king and discovered this plot was recorded in this book of the Chronicles. Read about that in the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, as the story moves on, we're introduced to another character of Haman, the Agagite. And Haman is this powerful official in the king's service. He was promoted, and he was very vain. He thought very highly of himself, and he loved the power and the status of his position. 
And so when people would come, often what you would do if you were a position of, of high authority and power, you would have folks bow to you, pay homage to you. And everyone who would do this would be acknowledged and honored. And there was one who didn't, Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, and this bugged Haman. This annoyed him. In fact, it enraged him because he was so vain that instead of ignoring this pest, he then sought to kill him. And so he learns that Mordecai is a Jew and that the Jewish religion doesn't allow them to bow down to anybody but God. Think of the story of Daniel and his refusal to bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and of Matt, uh, 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 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down and were thrown into the fire. Mordecai refused to bow down or pay homage. And Haman understood this was because he was a Jew. And so he tells the king, these Jews who exist in the land are bad for you. They, they don't worship you. They don't pay homage to you. Their religion won't let them. Their faith won't let them. And therefore, we should kill them all. They're not good Assyrians. And so he has this plot against the Jews through, curiously, the casting of lots. In fact, just look in chapter 3, verse 7, and this is how he determines how to, how to kill the Jews. Chapter 7, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, also the people, to do with as it seems good to you. And so the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman had commanded was written to the king's stirrups and all the governors all over, the, all over the provinces to the officials of all the peoples, and to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. And the day, and one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued, a decree in every providence with proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So what's happening here is now this edict has gone forth. Haman has convinced the king to set his seal of authority on this, on this edict, which says all the Jews in the land must be destroyed. The word is annihilated. And all their goods to be plundered. This, of course, was because Haman was jealous and wanted his own glory so that he would kill Mordecai and his people simply because he wouldn't bow. Well, in chapter 4, we learn that Mordecai and obviously all of the Jews who hear this edict are greatly troubled. 
and he begins to tear his clothes, and he wears sackcloth, and he mourns, and he cries. And Esther notices this, and he sees this, and she tries to help her cousin by sending him better clothes, and he gently wants to find out what's going on, and he tells Esther's servant why he's so upset. And he begs her, you must go to the king. You must tell him that this plot needs to be stopped. Please, save your people. Well, this was a hard thing to ask. Artaxerxes had a reputation. His first queen, if it was his first, refused to come out and participate in his celebrations. And nobody was ever allowed to be in his presence without his invitation. Otherwise, they could be killed. Even the queen herself must obey the king's rules. And so to an unannounced invite yourself into the king's court and the king's presence, demand that his royal edict signed with his own signet ring should be reversed was tantamount to committing suicide. That you would have the audacity to question the king's authority, to have him reverse the king's order. And that's what Mordecai was asking Esther to do. Well, she knew that would cost her her life, and she contemplated it. And look in verse 4. And notice the conversation between, sorry, verse 12, and notice the conversation between Mordecai and Esther. After they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply this to Esther, do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come not to this kingdom for such a time as this. Nestor told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. And I and my young women will do the fast also. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. So Esther, sensing something may have been up, decides to put her hands in the fate, whatever it may be guiding history decides to enter to the king's presence. Verse 5 shows how she decides to do this. She prepares a banquet for the king and for Haman so that he may begin to trust, earn their trust, to ask of this thing. So he invites the king. The king says, what do you want? I'll give you half of my kingdom if you want it. Anything, you can have it. She asks simply that you would come to a banquet with me and invite Haman. And so that's what he does. And she invites him again. And on the way out, she learns that Mordecai, Haman learns that Mordecai was still rejoicing in what, what Esther has done. And he plots now to kill Haman himself. He was given counsel by his own family to create this gallows that Haman could be nailed to and hung on. And so he begins the construction of the gallows. And we read about that in verse 9 of chapter 5. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart because he was invited in the king's presence with the queen to have this banquet. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, he restrained himself and went home, and he sat, he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number, uh, the number of his sons and all the promotion with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come to the king for the feast that he prepared. 
And tomorrow I am also invited to her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And so no longer was it enough to just to kill all the Jews. He was impatient on the day that was set for the destruction of the Jews, but now he wanted to go and destroy Mordecai himself. And so they erected this gallows to hang him and to kill him. Well, the timing just so happened that the second banquet would come, and that night the king could not sleep. Look in chapter 6 of verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And so he had this book of the Chronicles, the memorable deeds, be brought to him so he could read it. If you've ever found yourself having trouble falling asleep, grab a big, boring history book and begin to read it, and you will fall asleep. I think this is what he's doing here. He's reading now the Chronicles of the history that has happened in the most recent past, and he comes across the part where Mordecai had saved his own life. And he wonders, what's been done for this guy? And nothing, he learns. And so when Haman shows up, because he plans to go and ask if he can kill Mordecai now, instead of waiting for the day that they had planned to kill all the Jews, the king said, hey, what would you do with somebody who honors the king? How should the king honor him and repay him? Mordecai, thinking of himself, says, well, you should give him fine robes and let him give him the best horse, and you should parade him through town. And uh, the king says, yeah, let's do that. Grab Mordecai and go ahead and make sure that happens. I think it's worth reading again. Verse 4 is, Haman had just entered the court, the outer court of the king's palace, to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanging in the gallows that he prepared for them. And the king's young men told him, Haman's out there standing in the court. He said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Man, i got to love hubris. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and go do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and leave out nothing you have mentioned. And so Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. You can see he was very angry, and his wife recognizes that this, this is not a good sign for him. He tells his wife Zeresh, verse 13, and all of his friends, everything that happened to him, and then his wife, the wise men, his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely will fall before him. When the king then comes with Haman to the second banquet that she offers for them, Esther makes her final request. She says, my people will soon die. A plot has been made against them. The king asks, who is this? Tell me that I may repay him and kill him. And she points out that it's Haman. Haman is angry, or the king is angry, and he goes out to think about what to do next. But his most trusted official, the highest among the land next to the Queen Esther, 
has essentially undermined him and used him, manipulated him his own means. Meanwhile, while he's out in the garden thinking about this, Haman throws himself upon Esther for mercy. And right at that moment, the timing is peculiar. The king walks in and sees Haman tripping over Esther, who's reclining on the couch. And he thinks to himself, this man is trying to attack my own wife in my own presence. He was begging for her mercy. He thought he was attacking her. So they grab him and they kill him. In fact, they hang him on the same gallows he constructed to kill Mordecai. On that day, King Artaxerxes, chapter 8, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemies of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, and Esther told that he was with her. So yes, told her what he was to her. My cousin, we are Jews. And so he reverses with another edict and says actually that the Jews may then defend themselves against any who attacks them and that they have all the time that they need. In fact, the fear of Mordecai, who has been honored because of what he has done, has spread throughout all the land. None dared to attack the Jews any longer. And the Jews were able then in chapter 9 to destroy their enemies. Of course, they didn't take any as a plunder, but they were able to destroy those who had set out against them to destroy them. And they then had victory. And then they were celebrating the, the Feast of Pur, uh, of, uh, of Purim were now given, or Purim was now given by Mordecai that the Jews were to remember each year the victory that they had in Assyria over their enemies. So they were to celebrate that. Chapter 9, verse 19, Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the province of the king Ahasuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from the enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. So this is important. We, we see now the reversal of the fortunes of Israel, even though they are in captivity. Their, their lineage and their nation would soon be wiped out, but the, the plan to kill them and annihilate them was reversed. In fact, they began to have victory over their enemies. There's much more that we left unturned in the story. Again, I want to invite you to encourage you to read that story on your own later today. But really, Esther is a unique book. You've noticed because God was not mentioned once. But we see that the timing and the coincidences that have taken place in this book were actually not coincidences at all. Any Christian reader who reads the book will know that God's hand has been all over the process of caring for his people in the midst of their captivity and their troubles and their trials. In many ways, Esther is an ideological book. That's a word, really, that means an origin story. It means it tells the story of how the Feast of Purim came about. So when children ask, why are we celebrating this? Have you ever had that question at Christmas or Thanksgiving? And you can tell the story of what had taken place. Well, the book of Esther really tells why this feast is important and why they celebrate the Feast of Purim on those days and why they celebrate and why they eat and give gifts of food and give gifts of food to the poor. It's because they had been taken care of, that Mordecai saved the king, and that the king repaid Mordecai 
and Esther, his cousin, and they had great fortune, and this seemed to happen. They celebrate what God had done, though the book of Esther never mentions God once. This important book that is written without the name of God in it actually speaks most clearly, above anything, of God's faithfulness to his people. In fact, the book really calls us to remember two things. First, to remember God's faithfulness. To remember God's faithfulness. The Jews have a tradition, ultimately, of remembering God. The many feasts and the celebrations that were part of the Jewish calendar are really days of remembrances. To remember God's faithfulness, Passover being perhaps the most famous, of God's faithfulness to lead Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. They would celebrate his provision on that day. And year after year, they would celebrate these these provisions of the Lord, God's faithfulness from generation to generation to be remembered among the people. And this is especially important now because at this point, not much is being remembered. These Jews were, were outwardly, visibly, according to the law, they would celebrate some of these, these festivals and remembrances. But in large portions, they were members of the Assyrian society. They were normal, nominal Jews. And so the Feast of Purim is to remind them that they are God's covenant people and that God's faithfulness does not abate despite their captivity. There in chapter 9, we see the reminder and the call to remember God's faithfulness. Well, the past month we've seen, the past several months we've seen, God's faithfulness is carried out through his hand of providence, his sovereign work among the nations, his leading individuals and nations to do his will according to his own purpose. His sovereignty even extends over the sins of other people. That people's wrongdoing and unrighteousness does not escape the purview of God's sovereign hand. That though he is righteous and not the author of sin himself, his authority, sovereignty, and providence overextend beyond all of these things to orchestrate them according to his will. He bends every act of man, every decree of every nation, and orders every molecule in the world to bend to his own will. That is the sovereign hand of God. And he bends his sovereignty. He bows his sovereignty so that it would be used for the good of his people. That's the contrast. Think of the king Ahasuerus and his great might and power, who has never once given his might and power to another or used it for the good of others except that which would fit him. His queen, sure, I'll give you my kingdom. Some of his royal substance, those he wants to honor, sure. But he never shared his glory and would never share his power. But God uses his power. God uses his sovereignty. God uses the providential care of the world, not simply so that he can show how great he is, but that he could show how great he is in the good of his people. He cares for us. And so the book of Esther is a call of God's people to remember God's faithfulness. And though he is not mentioned once in the story, we are seeing over and over and over again the hand of God's faithfulness through the hand of God's providence. So we're told firstly to remember God's faithfulness, but secondly, we're told to remember your purpose. 
Remember your purpose. Turn again to chapter 4 and remember God's, uh, uh, Mordecai's word to Esther. When she said, look, I can't go to the king. He'll kill me. He says, you're right. In verse 12, I, I, verse 13, I, I don't think that you're not going to escape punishment if you do this. And if you don't, that's fine. Help will come from the Jews, verse 14. Deliverance and relief will rise from the Jews for another place. But you will, you'll die. This plot will go forward and the Jews will all, you and your father's house will perish. But, he says, at the end of verse 14, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And here is now a moment of crisis for God's people. And he has placed particular people in particular positions so that they might leverage those positions for the good of his people. Now there's a crossroads Esther must face, that she must now live up to the purpose for which God called her, or be silent and face whatever may come. Not only here in the, the picture of, uh, of Esther in her own purpose for why God may have allowed her in his providence to become king, queen, but Mordecai also, as he rises to prominence, as the king honors him, also has the ability to, to lead the people into victory. He is able to, able to guide the king and become second in command, as it were. To remember the purpose is one of the, the, the main themes of the book of Esther. In lots of ways, Israel had become nominal community of faith. Outwardly only, but inward, there was no true repentance. One of the reasons God has never mentioned is because they do not pray to God. They weep, they mourn, but they come up with a plan on their own. They do not pray to, pray to God. Even their celebrations after they've been delivered from this plot was because of their victory. And the fear that swept up the nation was not the fear of Israel's God, but of Mordecai himself. So this was a nominal group of, of Jews who, did, who had really lost the, the allegiance and the faithfulness that they had once had. And so the remembering of their purpose from the book of Esther really was a call to remember covenant faithfulness not their nominalism, to return once again to covenant faithfulness as they enact this act of remembrance in the Feast of Purim. They were to recall God's faithfulness and to return to covenant faithfulness themselves. Friends, you and I may be in the same boat where we are weary and exhausted in this world and perhaps have fallen a little too much akin with our culture we are indistinguishable from the rest of, the, of society. Where outwardly we come to church and we do the things that Christians seem to do, but inwardly we have become nominal, comfortable, complacent. Well, Esther speaks to us this morning. It says, God has been faithful to you. And although you may have just grown jaded by all the things around the world, even in your own society, in your own life, you must return to covenant faithfulness to God. He has not abandoned you. Do not abandon him. It's easy to fall into complacency, but God reminds us of his own faithfulness that we must return to covenant faithfulness ourselves. And this is best seen in this little understood paradigm in the book of Esther. Really, Esther, for those familiar with the Old Testament, particularly those of Israel's early history in Exodus, would have picked up on this holy war. In fact, if you remember from the book of Exodus, the holy war between Israel and the Amalekites. 
In Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy again in chapter 15, we learn about these two nations, and it says that God would be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation, and that Israel must blot out the name of Amalek and his sons under heaven. Now, what's the deal with the Amalekites? Well, you may recall, or you don't, I'll tell you, the very first nation that attacked Israel after they came out of Egypt were the Amalekites. And in Israel's history, the Amalekites represented all of the nations, Psalm 2, that would rage and plot in vain and that sought to destroy God's people. And so God had promised to blot out the name of Amalekite under heaven and to be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And there would be enmity between these two nations on and on. Israel's job was to not give mercy or quarter to Amalek, but was instead to destroy them. And this tension, this holy war, is reprised in the book of Esther. Where do we see that? Well, consider Haman. Haman was called the Agagite. Agagite is coming from the name of his father, Agag, and Agag was the Amicalite king that Saul was supposed to destroy, but didn't. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And even when David took over and sought to destroy those of his enemies, which he did fairly successfully, about 400 of the Amicalites fled before David could ultimately destroy them. So there still was this remnant of Amicalites that were opposed to God's people. And here we have Haman, the Agagite, who came from this, this king of the Amicalites who was opposed to God and God's people that they were so set to destroy and he is the one who once again leads this plot against God's people to destroy Israel. So Saul and Agag in, in 1 Samuel 15 would fight. Saul didn't put him to death. David couldn't put him to death. And so the enmity between these nations were never resolved and were never brought to its final chapter and close until we get to the book of Esther. And God allows us to draw this idea out. The Amicalites, and Saul, by the way, was a descendant of Benjamin of the tribe, uh, of Cush, who was a, of the tribe of Benjamin, who would seek to fight Agag. God allows us to draw this, this picture of the Holy War out to show exactly what he's doing and intending to do through this story. Ultimately, we learn that Haman is hung on the gallows and his ten sons as well. And this puts a sufficient end to the people of the Amicalites. Well, what's this sort of tension meant to show us? Is that God continues to fight his battles for his people and that Israel must be called to covenant faithfulness to do that which he had purposed them to do. Their job is to honor God. Their God job is to be faithful to God's covenant. Their job, despite all their, their enemies come against them, is to trust in God's goodness and give themselves to the Lord's service so they, would occur, they could do according to their purpose. So what's happening in the book of Esther for us then? Well, what we see between the faithfulness of God and the purposes of God that he calls us to is that we establishes God's purposes, God's wills, God's intentions with our calling. That all the crossroads and the many, the many paths that have brought you to where you are are woven together both from your individual story and with God's redemptive plan and the story of history brought together to here and now. And we're called then to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness that has led us to this point, 
and to be called and reminded of our own purposes in the current circumstances we find ourselves in so that we may rise to the occasion and to do that which is according to God's word. Now, we don't have holy wars to fight at this moment because we do not battle against flesh and blood. Apostle Paul tells us in chapter 6 of Ephesians that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and power of the air, against the demonic forces that are work against us. And we are then to put on the full armor of God that we may defend ourselves against the fiery darts of the enemy. So we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we have very real enemies. We are very much in a holy war of sorts. And this picture here is to say that we turn to God for the help in our victory. And how has God given us the victory? Through Christ, who was hanged on a tree. We see the picture of death of God's, uh, God's enemies in Esther, but really we see the greater picture of the death of death in the book of Esther. When we think about how do we win our battles? How do we fulfill our purpose to do that which God has called us to do? Not by looking within ourselves, but by turning to God. So we can learn that our purpose is to put on the full armor of God and to trust in Christ for our full and final victory. We see in this the weaving together of God's purposes, his plans, and his intention with our individual callings, our individual stories, into the greater narrative of God's redemptive plan. As Esther unfolds, we see clearly God's work, though his name is not mentioned. And as our own lives unfold, we see God at work, though he may feel distant. We know that God's faithfulness endures from generation to generation. And we know that our purpose then is to trust in that faithfulness and to do that which he has called us to. So where are you in life? And what particular calling have you been given by God? Now, calling is sometimes a fancy word we attach to things to make ourselves feel special. But at the end of the day, calling is simply a purpose that God has given you that fits into his greater plan. You may not know it at the time, but your job is a calling. Your vocation is a calling. Your neighborhood is a calling. Where you live, work, breathe, play is a calling. None of this happens by coincidence or by accident. But everything in your life has come together, as Mordecai says to Esther, for such a time as this. The question is, how might we be faithful and go toward our calling, as Esther would, to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness is to walk faithfully ourselves in our purpose. Not to have a better parking spot, not to have things prosper for us, but because God is faithful to us, we commit ourselves to remember his faithfulness and our purpose. Not through nominalism, but through working, walking, according to God's word. All of this, at the end of the day, comes through Christ, who is our victor, who establishes for us all the truth and the true north of our lives so that we walk faithfully in God's word according to our calling. In fact, when you read the New Testament, much of what's said about calling is who we are, called to be saints, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul was called to be an apostle. You are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So when we think about calling, we simply mean your new identity in Christ, where you are, when you are, and the way that you are. All of this has come together by God's providence and care so that you could fulfill your purpose to glorify God, to fight the good fight, to walk faithfully with God 
according to his word, and to remember God's faithfulness. Ultimately, shown to us in Christ. Remember Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Let's pray. Father, there's still much we left unturned. But we, we, we pray and I ask, God, that what has been said this morning and read from your word was sufficient to begin to stir our hearts to seek more. God, we ask that we would uh, turn our hearts away from complacency and, and Lord, you would forgive us of our, our neglect of considering your ways. We're reminded of the hymn that God moves in mysterious ways and that though Lord, you may act, we may not see you, we know you, you, you do so for our good and that behind a frowning providence, you hide a smiling face. Lord, would we be reminded of that, that our circumstances and our lives have been all brought together according to your purpose and your will. Every molecule in the world is in its place. Every person in this room is in their, in their place so that you may do according to your will and that we may fulfill our purpose according to your will, not for our own glory, not for our own vanity, all sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Redeemed and washed by his blood. We pray these things, give thanks to them now, in Jesus' name. Amen.